Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Hollywood from the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, and you better be watching Stu's Wrestling Podcast, because if you don't, I know where you park your car. You're listening to Stu's Wrestling Podcast. It's time for British Wrestling's Sharpshooter, your host, Stu Palmer! Big, big thank you to everyone who has liked, shared, subscribed, followed us on all platforms. We are available across all podcast platforms now. Please just put Stu's Wrestling Podcast into your podcast platform and you will find us. Please review. We want some reviews as well. We need feedback. We'll take good and bad, as I said previously. Just any feedback of any type, please, please, please. Spread the word. Share our posts on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're very, very, very happy about that. Thank you. A warm welcome to episode 53 of Stu's Wrestling Podcast, and my guest today is none other than the associate producer for The Wrestler and the associate producer for the wrestling documentary 350 Days, Evan Ginsberg. It took a long, long time for the film to come to fruition, many, many years of work before it got released. They did it on a budget a lot lower than what they were intending on using. The film was critically acclaimed, and it reinvigorated the career of Mickey Rourke. We also talk about the documentary based on the trials and tribulations of living on the road, wrestling back in the 70s and 80s, maybe even further back. That's the documentary 350 Days, which Evan was also an associate producer for. So we talk about all this and more. Evan has been across all sorts of media over the years, radio, TV, you name it. He's even written a book and he's in the process of writing another book. So here we go, episode 53 with Evan Ginsberg. Enjoy. My guest today, all the way from Queens, New York, is associate producer of Academy Award-nominated film, The Wrestler, which reinvigorated Mickey Rourke's career, might I add, Evan, and also the associate producer for 350 Days, a wrestling documentary, trialing the trials and tribulations of what the wrestlers used to go through years ago, being on the road. Mr. Evan Ginsberg. How are you? How's it going? Uh I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, and it's a pleasure to be uh, with you guys in the UK. My my cousin 
My beloved cousin, uh, Mark Schofield, is the dean at Edge Hill University, right outside of uh, Liverpool in Ormskirk. So I've been to England many times. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you about Edge Hill in in a little in a little while. Right, I'm gonna do this. It's a bit different the way I'm gonna structure this one. Normally I go chronological, and I'd be asking you about wrestling when you were a kid when you used to watch it. But I want to talk firstly about the wrestler. And just how, oh. how it came about from a, from a filmmaker's standpoint, obviously, us, the consumer, we don't really realize how much work goes into it. So a bit of background about the wrestler getting Mickey Rourke. Yeah, just fire away, man, fire away. Um, what happened was people have, people have no idea. The wrestler took seven years to make from start to finish. 350 days took six years. But let me, let me stay on the wrestler meanwhile. So um, I was an agent. I'm sitting at, a, at an appearance with Nikolai Volkov and Johnny Valiant, beloved friends, both gone now. And, um, you know, they're signing autographs. They're chatting with the fans, taking pictures, the usual. And a gentleman walks up to us and he says um, he's the best friend of the executive producer of The Wrestler. And people get confused with all of these titles. The executive producer is the money guy. He makes the deals. He wheels and deals. He gets the funding for the movie. As associate producer, I was the wrestling guy. So um, I did a half dozen or so casting calls. I brought in Necro Butcher, Ron Killings, Romeo Roselli, the Ring of Honor guys, etc. so on. So let me backtrack a bit. So the, um, the gentleman says, we would love for you guys to somehow be involved with this project. Would you, do you know who Darren Aronofsky is? So I go, I go, man, it's like I, I love Requiem for a Dream and The Fountain. And, you know, I said, I'm a fan. I, I know exactly who he is. So, you know, months go by. We don't hear anything. And all of a sudden I get a call. Would you like to have a meeting? Bring anybody you feel would be fitting. So I'm sitting at this meeting with Aronofsky, Scott Franklin, the screenwriter, you know, a couple other guys. I bring Nikolai, Johnny Valiant, Tiger Khan, who's also gone now, Nikolai's manager, Nikita Brezhnikov, and we just hit it off. Johnny was, Johnny was the funniest guy in the world. He's telling him road stories, and Nikolai was so charming, and... It's just, just like we spent a couple hours together and we bonded. We just bonded. So they're picking uh, Nikolai and Johnny's brain and tell us about this guy, tell us about that. And to make a long story short, they offer me the job. And I go, great, you know, let's do it. And uh, again, time went by and uh, all of a sudden there were more meetings and funding meetings. We wanted... 16 million to make the movie and we only got six which is basically the food budget on an avengers movie okay okay six million is ultra low budget people don't understand okay so um we would go when we finally started shooting we would go down to ring of honor and other you know indie shows and we couldn't afford thousands of extras we were working with real fans, real fans. 
And they didn't want us there. They, they were like, you're interrupting our wrestling show. Get out. So, so um, one day they were so hostile that Aronofsky got in the middle of the ring on the mic and said, listen, guys, we're going to do good by you. We're going to do something you'll all be proud of. Just let us shoot for a few minutes. And it was like guerrilla filmmaking, you know. Um, you know they, they would literally just ring of honor matches would stop. We'd get in the ring, do our thing, boom, 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 and we'd be out within the hour. So, I mean, what you see there is very raw because it was. It wasn't like we had 20 takes and you know, 20 different angles. It was, it was a great, exciting, exhilarating, pure filmmaking experience. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. How was it? Now, obviously, we heard about Mickey Rourke when he took the role. He, he trained as a wrestler, didn't he? Oh, yeah. During and the film. Was, yeah, he was in his early 50s. Prior, he had been a boxer. He had left film to get punched in the face as a boxer, which is highly unusual. The guy was like a 80s matinee idol, sex symbol. So you wouldn't expect this guy to want to get punched in the face. And... Um, He's kind of like a tortured artist, wonderful guy. I never saw him say no for an autograph, a picture, warm, friendly, always had a cute little dog with him. You know, just a great guy, but a tortured artist. And you don't usually walk away from, you know, million-dollar movies to to box. And uh, the wrestler at the time, he was not, you know, top box office anymore in 2000 in the 2000s, and we, we, we filmed in 2008. So um, at one point, when we couldn't get the funding that we needed, Aronofsky has us meet with Nicolas Cage, who at the time was a big deal. I mean, really big box office. So where do I meet Nicolas Cage? In the parking area beneath the Ring of Honor show. He's like, Aronofsky's like, Evan, you're the point man. Just get him backstage, you know, without the paparazzi, you know. Because at the time, he, w- he was a big deal, uh, Nicholas. I mean, he still is, but he was a big, big star at that, at that point. And the funny part of the story is Nicholas Cage is watching Ring of Honor. He thinks it's like UFC. He thinks it's a shoot. He doesn't even know what he's watching, you know. <laughs> so, um, so Darren comes back to me and goes, Evan, you know, Nicolas Cage is a great guy, but Mickey's the right guy. Mickey looks like he's been through something. Mickey looks the part. He looks the part. So Darren is an artist. He went with his heart, not with, I can make more money with the other guy. So you have to give him credit for that. And um, there were five or six script rewrites, you know, various funding meetings, casting. People have no idea what goes into making a movie. It was a seven-year process from start to finish. Did it ever run through your mind that it wouldn't have got done and come out as a film at any point, or did you and the team remain positive throughout? You know, just because of the length of time it took to get it released and well, done. Well, the problem was the funding because we couldn't get big money off of uh, Mickey's name, or even Marissa Tomei. I mean, Marissa Tomei is a highly regarded actress. She does Broadway. Um, 
but she's not a quote-unquote Julia Roberts, you know, movie star box office. But they were the right people for this film, and Darren stuck to his guns. And um, am I allowed to curse on your show? You, I see you have a sponsor. You can. You're fine. Any expletives? Okay. You can. You okay. can do it. You can do it. Not a problem okay. here. So uh, we're at the wrap party for the uh, movie. It's finally done. All the blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, Aronofsky's making a speech. I'll never forget it. He goes, quote, I don't know what the fuck we have, but we have something. I'll never forget it, you know, with real optimism, you know. Uh, so it was, so next thing we know, we're sitting at Lincoln Center, New York Film Festival, 2,300 seats, $40 a ticket, sold out. My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, is seated next to me. And um, prior to this, uh, I'll backtrack a bit. I had taken Aronofsky and crew to a convention, a wrestling convention. Basically, every weekend we were on the road. I would take them to indie shows, Ring of Honor, conventions, uh, etc., so on. So... We're at this convention. There's Lou Albano, Mula, Mae Young, Nikolai, Iron Sheik, all the legends, and there's nobody there. It was empty. There were 20 or 30 people. It was grim, grim. Iron Sheik's head is down on the table sleeping. That's how dead it was at this place. Okay. Aronofsky's like, what's going on? Where are the people? Because these were the guys he remembered from the 80s. These were his heroes. He was a wrestling fan. And, so, and you know, ditto uh, much of the crew. They were mid-80s wrestling fans. Hulkamania, Rock and Wrestling, Cindy Lauper, Wendy Richter, okay? So next thing I know, the screenwriter puts this depressing wrestling scene into the script. It wasn't in the original script. Okay, so now I'm on set just watching, hanging out, and uh, Aronofsky gets this smirk, he, he, and he goes, Evan, come here. And I go, yeah. So he goes, Evan, I want you to walk around to all the wrestlers in the scene, walk up to Mickey last, ask him for an autograph and a Polaroid. So Mickey comes over to me, whispers in my ear, he goes, just improv it. He thinks I'm an actor. I'm not an actor. <laughs> I'm one of the producers. I'm not, I've never acted in my life. So um, I do what they tell me. I walk up to Mickey last, and I go, I'm thinking, like, what, what do I say? We're improv again. So I go, I loved you as a kid. I saw you at Madison Square Garden. Can I have your autograph? He looks at me, and he says, what's your name? So I'm thinking again. <laughs> you know, I'm, impro I'm improv -ing. So I just go, Evan. And, and it, I'm thinking how surreal this is. I'm playing myself in a fictional film. How utterly surreal this whole thing is. So um, we, do, we do the scene. Darren runs over, starts pounding me on the chest. Great job, great job. I'm like, I just said what I would say to any wrestler. And uh, Johnny Valiant says to me, Evan, you know, your hand was shaking when you did this. And you know, there was 125 or so people on set these giant cameras in your face. I'm not an actor. So, you know, that really rang true. So getting back to where I started with the story, we're at Lincoln Center out of door, Lincoln Center uh, 
New York Film Festival, and um, I'm sitting there, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and uh, she looks at the screen, she looks at me, she looks at the screen, she looks at me, she goes, that's you, that's you, you know, how bizarre this whole thing was, and um, the movie ends, we got a spontaneous standing ovation, and I just said, seven years of hard work, you know, I just said, this is the best night of my life. The, the best, for, for somebody's, a team, of course, for a team's work to be acknowledged, it was, it was just very special and very moving and uh, just this lengthy standing ovation. And I tell people to this day, I say, Mickey's performance is iconic. He won the Golden Globe for Best Actor. He was nominated at the Academy Awards. He lost to Sean Penn. Sean's Pen, Sean Penn's character is more sympathetic. He gets gunned down, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I understood the uh, the politics of it all, but I tell people the scene where Mickey Rourke says to his daughter, Evan Rachel Wood, he, he says, uh, "I'm just a broken down piece of meat." I go, "That's like Brando and on the waterfront. I could have been a contender. It's iconic and." Uh, I say all the time, 100 years from now, people will watch that movie, particularly for that performance. And um, we're very proud of it. None of us got rich from it. It's a low-budget film, but, you know, that film will stand the test of time. It was Oscar worthy. I, you know, I was a big, big wrestling fan, but I just appreciate what, what a way to depict it and uh, show these guys maybe that, you know, want to get in the business just how, you know, just how hard it was. The realism, it was the realism for me, Evan. Incredible, incredible how it was, how it was shot and scripted. Um, well, I tell, I tell people a lot of these guys do not end up well. There's guys who headlined arenas throughout the world. Never broke a hundred grand, late seventies, early eighties. Never broke a hundred grand, and um, you know, ended up pushing a broom or bouncing or whatever the case may be. And um, you know, a lot of people do not end up well. Yesterday in America was Labor Day, and I tell people all the time: these guys deserve four hundred one ks and benefits and pensions, and. Um, it's a shame that billionaires exploit these guys. Yeah. How did you feel with the WWE cross-promoting the film and then using it for WrestleMania? You know, obviously having Mickey at ringside. What were your thoughts with that? With Vince I, I, had mixed, I had mixed emotions. I'm not a big Vince fan for the reasons I just said. But at the same time, if it helped the film and got publicity... Uh, you know, you do, it's, it's still a business. It's the movie business, the film business, and you're putting millions of dollars into something and your reputations are on the line. As directors don't want failures. And the movie was a critical success and financially it, it did fine. I mean, it was, again, it wasn't Avengers, Spider-Man, Captain America, but it did well. So you can't ask for more than critical acclaim and a financial success. So um, when the smoke cleared, it all worked. I wanted him in the match with Jericho. I know he had his little bit at the end, but I really wanted him. I think all the fans, I would have loved that, just have seen him go, go uh, with It gets Jericho. very complicated with these guys because once they're contracted for other films, 
they can't get hurt. You, you're no. shutting down a movie. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, when, all, all I could say is when all is said and done, um, it's, it's something we're all very, very proud of. And uh, Mickey's real payoff was his next film, Iron Man 2. He played the yeah. heel. He got a million dollars. And, you know, he didn't get rich from the wrestler. So uh, that was his real payoff. Incredible, incredible. Right, I'm going to segue into 350 Days now, the wrestling documentary. How did that come about, the start, you know, starting out, getting that, putting that together, Evan? Sure. Um, <clears throat> another Darren, Darren Antola, he was a also mid-80s, early to mid-80s, huge wrestling fan. He loved Morocco and Snooker and, uh, you know, Patero, all these guys. He was a huge, huge fan. And ironically, he was a boxing guy, and he still is. He, he was a noted boxing trainer. He worked with Kendall Holt and Yuri Foreman, world champions. He's been all over the world, cut man, trainer. And uh, he took some of his money along with his business partner, David Wilkins. And um, he said, I want to do a wrestling documentary that really tells the story. And it's called 350 Days because guys like Ric Flair and Holly Race, who aren't in the film, who were world champions, they would literally work 350 days. Bret Hart said he worked 336 days. Greg Valentine said to me he worked 320 days a year. So imagine the toll on the human body, the family, the marriage, the relationship with the kids, you are almost never home. 320 to 350 days a year, you're not there. Okay? So think back to Starcade, Survivor Series, some of the biggest shows of the year. Starcade was Christmas. Survivor Series was Thanksgiving. Sorry, kids. I won't be home for Thanksgiving. I won't be home for Christmas. Sometimes they weren't there for their kid's birth, their kid's graduation, their kid's marriage. Okay, they weren't there. So a lot of this movie is the guilt, the pain, the sacrifice. Some of these wrestlers have said to me, Evan, I'm always in pain. Always. People don't grasp this. They don't grasp it whatsoever. So the movie, I'm not going to bore your listeners with a laundry list, but the stars are Billy Graham, Bret Hart, Tito Santana, Greg Valentine, Bill Eady. Uh, you know, it's three dozen guys. I don't want to give you a laundry list. But uh, DiBiase, Orndorff, I mean, it's a who's who of 70s and 80s and 90s wrestling guys. Brett's my favorite of all time, Evan. I know I've said this off camera to you. So I was just, as soon as I saw the trailer and Brett was on it, obviously I respect you, the guys love him, but Brett, Brett is still top of the list. How was it interviewing Brett? Maybe if you extend off, you know, Brett. I, I was not physically there for that. We had a Canadian team, Fulvio Cesare, the director and, and one of the producers. He's a Canadian guy. And um, a lot of the guys came out of Canada in the movie. Uh, King Kong Mosca, Farmer Pete, Don Leo Jonathan, the great Don Leo Jonathan, Butcher Paul Vachon. A lot of these guys were Canadian guys. So um, 
But all I could say from what everybody on the team told me, Brett was honest, open, poured his heart out. Originally, they had told him it'll take two, three hours. He sat there all day just giving them, you know, poured his heart and soul out. And um, it's interesting to me, some of the obsessive fans and uh, fandom in the internet wrestling community, they'll say things, I hate Bret Hart, I hate Billy Graham, I hate Lex Luger, <laughs> have our cast, you know? But, um, you know, these guys, again, sacrificed mightily to entertain the fans. Wrestlers have this expression, um, there's only so many bumps on our bump card. And in, in 350 days, they just literally show you every part of their body that's been broken, replaced, damaged. You know, um, people have no idea, no idea. Uh, Rick Drayson just died, the famous bodybuilder. He was a wrestler out of L.A. He was in our movie. There's a famous uh, photo of him where there's like 50 arrows pointed to every part of his body that's been damaged and replaced, you know? It's, it's amazing what these guys go through. I'm going to stay with wrestling now, and I'm going to go way back. When did you first start watching pro wrestling? Sure. Um, I was a baby at Gotch Hackenschmidt at the turn of the uh, previous century, 1906 or so. Oh, that's a joke. That's <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, uh, I started watching in 72. This is a funny story. Back in the day, you're probably too young to remember this, we had something called the UHF dial. And this was before people had full cable. This was very primitive. There was a U dial. And I, it was raining. I was bored. This is pre-internet, pre-cell phones. I'm a kid. So I'm turning these obscure channels. Some of them weren't even in English, okay? And all of a sudden, I see this giant guy pounding on this Indian. And I didn't even know what it was. It was pro wrestling. It was Chief J Strongbow, and he was on the uh, TV tapings. And I was just, like, intrigued by it because all of a sudden he makes this comeback, like this herky-jerky war dance. And it was so exhilarating for a little kid and a mock because I thought it was real. And, you know, I was like, wow. And I, and I figured out this is on such and such a time every week. And I started watching it religiously. And finally, about two years later, my dad, who was a New York City taxi driver, takes me to Madison Square Garden. And the main of this is not June 24, 1974, etched in your brain forever, your first card. It was Nikolai and Fred Blassie against Bruno and Strongbow, Bruno San Martino and Chief J. Strongbow. And Fred Blassie was so charismatic, and Nikolai would squeeze fruit with his bare hands and make it explode. He was such a powerhouse. And... It was just amazing. And uh, the same card, you had the Valiant Brothers against Tony Guerrero and Dean Ho. And, you know, it was as, as a kid who was a total mock, it was like Marvel superheroes and supervillains. That's the best way to explain it. And this is a funny part of the story. My TV at the time, this is so long ago, it was black and white. 
and you suddenly walk into the arena and it's in color, boy. You know, these guys are colorful with the jackets and the outfits. It was like magic. And um, basically from, I would say, 74 to 85, I went every month, the Garden, the Coliseum, Westchester County Center, all the classic WWWF, later WWF legends. I, mean, I was there the night Morocco wrestled Snooker in the cage. Oh, man. Incredible. Incredible. Oh, yeah. And, and to be there live, you have to understand, again, pre-internet. We didn't know that Snooker had done this 20 times prior. So he's climbing up the cage, and we're like, no, this isn't going to happen, you know? And then he gets to the top of the cage, and he actually jumps up. And, and back then, again, it was a different world. Thousands of flash cubes went off. Flash cubes. Okay? So it was so electric. And he, he lands on Morocco, and basically for five minutes, the place just roared. Roared. It was like the building was shaking. And um, another time I'm sitting at the garden, who shows up? Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid. No, no way. Yes, I'm sitting oh, there. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, again, this is pre-internet. We vaguely heard of these guys. We, we weren't watching YouTube and oh. New Japan and, you know, all Japan. We vaguely heard of these guys. So this is a big man's territory. You know, basically, Pedro Morales, Bruno Sammartino, Backlund. I mean, Billy Graham was very unusual to have a brief heel champion. But you had these face champions who were like looked at as supermen, so they always had these super heavyweights. It was always Ernie Ladd, Killer Kowalski, Don Leo, Jonathan, superstar Billy Graham, you know, Ivan Koloff, who was a big powerhouse. So all of a sudden you had these smaller guys, and they're doing moves we never saw in our lives, and our mouths are hanging open. Di prime Dynamite Kid and uh, Tiger Mask. And we just sat there like in awe, and we didn't realize that was the future of the business because, you know, 10 years later, they're going to guys like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and later even Rey Mysterio. You know, we never imagined these normal-sized guys or even little guys would get pushed like that because it was always a super heavyweight territory. Watching through the 70s and 80s, Adam, could you have foreseen how big wrestling went in terms of internationally could you have no. seen that as a as a fan because obviously you know the era you're talking about it was territories wasn't it and stuff of that nature not at all not at all um basically wwwf was an east coast territory up and down the east coast of america um it was a very ethnic time you had Pedro Morales, the Puerto Rican champion, Bruno, the Italian champion, Ivan Koloff, the Polish strongman, etc., so on. That was the way they, they built it. And ironically, you know, think 70s, it wasn't far removed from the Cold War. You know, James Bond was always fighting the Russians from <laughs> Russia with love, you know. So a lot of the heels were Russians. And it was only 25 or 30 years removed from World War II. So a lot of the bad guys were Nazis. Waldo von Erich, 
Baron von Raske, Hans Schroeder, Otto von Heller. You know, these guys would actually have like Nazi flags. It was a different world back then. So it was very simple, meat and potatoes, beloved good guy, horrible villainous bad guy, you know, East Coast. So all of a sudden, again, I'm sitting at Madison Square Garden. I'm there for all this history. You have Roddy Piper and, and Cowboy Bob Orton and Lou Albano and Cindy Lauper, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, Piper hits, hits Albano over the head with the plaque, you know, and smashes it over his head. And he pushes Cindy Lauper, who at the time is like the, one of the biggest rock stars in the world. People don't realize she was on fire back then. And like, we never saw anything like this with mainstream celebrities. Vince McMahon Sr. blew off uh, Andy Kaufman. Yeah. He's like, we don't do that here. You know, but Vince Jr., he saw the potential bringing mainstream celebrities. And next thing you know, there's Mr. T, and there's the front cover of Sports Illustrated with Hulk Hogan, and Cable. Cable blew it up to where it could be all over the world, literally all over the world. And it was just like a perfect storm, except Vince destroyed the territories. He destroyed the territories, one after another. And um, so what happens today, you have guys that have been with WWE for 15 years, 20 years, and you, you can't just make somebody who's incredibly stale hot again. You know... I'm only going to get so excited seeing Randy Orton or Big E or Dolph Ziggler for the 5,000th time. It's, it's, it's overkill. So the territories kept everything fresh. The heel would come in, get his run, lose to the face, work his way down, intercontinental, mid-card, bye-bye, come back two, three, four, five years later, he's hot again. And that's the way they did it, and it worked. It was a formula that worked. But Vince, you know, wanted world domination. And um, for better and worse, you know, it's a different product today. Who, in, in when you're watching it during the 70s and 80s, maybe into the 90s as well, which guys or guy slipped through the net who you felt could have been a superstar, didn't quite achieve? Was there anybody... Um, a lot of it depended on push, where they perceived you. Um, I, I liked very much I and Mike Sharp, and when he came in, he wrestled Backland in certain arenas. I saw him wrestle Tito Santana for the Intercontinental Championship at the Garden, 20-minute draw. He was a headliner in UWF. He was a headliner in Calgary. So um, at some point, you know, they made the guy a job. I think they could have done a lot more with him. He was always top-notch, always gave 110%. Um, WWE brought in a ton of NWA guys and um, basically squandered them. I mean, you know, Al Perez, Terry Taylor. These were all top-notch wrestlers who I would see with the NWA in Philly uh, month after month, and when WWE picked them up, um, it was a weird transition. Um, you would see guys like Mr. Wrestling 2 and uh, Missing Link and 
a lot of guys came in from NWA, but were like undercard guys and, uh, you know, didn't last long. They just, so it's hard to, it's hard to just say one name, but um, WWF, late 80s, early 90s, squandered a lot of talent. I mean, Terry Taylor was a tremendous wrestler and that uh, Red Rooster thing was just horrendous, horrendous. Um, they, they killed a lot of, Barry Windham, there's, there's, there's the answer to your question. I saw Barry Windham wrestle Ric Flair for the NWA belt. It's one of the greatest matches I've ever seen out of thousands. One of the top 10 or 20 matches I've ever seen. And Barry Windham comes to WWE. He's, he's the widow maker. He's got his stupid gimmicks. Uh, you know, the, that's a guy who had WWE used him well. He was a world-class wrestler. I mean, he could work with anybody. It's that age-old question that we all ponder. Is wrestling fixed? This is Bill Apter, and my answer to that is, I didn't know it was broken. So many of you know me from my days back at the classic wrestling magazines, and a lot of you from OneWrestling.com and OneWrestlingVideo.com. But I always get questions about various things I did through the years to propel my career to where it is today, as the world's most recognizable journalist in pro wrestling. What was my relationship with the McMahons? Was I the guy who started that feud between the actor, comedian Andy Kaufman and Jerry the King Lawler? What is Ric Flair really like? Who are my favorites? Well, all this and more answered in my book that you can get online or at your favorite book dealer called Is Wrestling Fixed? I didn't know it was broken. It's a great read got great views, and hopefully you'll be picking it up soon, too. So the answer to Is Wrestling Fixed? You know it now. I didn't know it was broken. This is Bill Apter, and I'll see you at the matches. GTG, often imitated but never duplicated. You can a brawl at the shoulder, narrowed at the hip. No other promotion. Give us any lip. We're the best of the best. The beast of the east. S-O-S. Simply out of sight. G. When he said, good times going to you. Do you watch much current wrestling or do you stay away from it? I watch New Japan. Um, I subscribe to New Japan World. Um, I subscribe to Ring of Honor, um, Honor Club. Um, I was enjoying NXT and especially NXT TakeOvers, but I don't like the antiseptic, you know, there's no fans anymore. It just is missing something. I was enjoying AEW very much. I think Pentagon and um, the Young Bucks and uh, all these guys, Phoenix. I, I think some of these guys are just great. I'm not one of these old school, there's been no good wrestling since no, the territories. No. Those guys are ridiculous. Um, so... The answer is, during the pandemic, less so, but um, New Japan has live crowds now, so at least it feels like a wrestling show. They're seated like a guy's in the middle, and there's nobody on both sides of them, and the fan's wearing a mask, and they're not allowed to yell. Interesting. They don't want any spit. They're not allowed to yell. 
but you, at least as fans and you get a sense of yeah. some kind of reaction and yeah very the the more under normal circumstances pre-covid the japanese yeah. crowd the more observant anyway aren't they so yeah you know. i mean I, I felt the same way with uh, boxing and ufc it doesn't have the same feel without no. the fans uh, I, I i would always watch boxing religiously and i i find myself you know putting on a good movie instead exercising whatever the case may be i, I would watch every boxing show on sh- it's not on HBO anymore, on Showtime or whatever the case may be. But, um, it, it, you know, without fans reacting, it's just missing something. Um, I, I get you. Who else, who else is uh, standing out with the promotions that you watch? You've said a few guys. Whichever guys whet your appetite you enjoy seeing when they're on screen? Well, lo- live, um, I was there, there for Ivan Koloff. Superstar Billy Graham. You can hear in my voice the reverence I have for these guys. <laughs> Don Morocco, heel Don Morocco, early to mid-80s, unbelievable. Pat Patterson, my God, was Pat Patterson ever great? Pat Patterson was one of these guys who just as great face or heel, which is very unusual. Roddy Piper was an unbelievable heel. He wasn't as good as a face, I'm sorry. Some people get offended when you say it, but he was a much better heel. Um, same with Morocco. Morocco wasn't as good as a face. He was a great heel. Patera, same, same story. Um, Ric Flair in his prime was amazing. Amazing. The Valiant Brothers, Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express. Midnight Express was the greatest tag team I ever saw. I mean, just art. Midnight Express and Rock and Roll Express could wrestle every day of the week and have a four-star match. I mean, just unbelievable. And um, the Road Warriors were great. Um, I don't think they were as great as the Midnight Express. Some people just go, fact! You know, Road Warriors, greatest tag team of all time. I go, no, it's not a fact. It's all opinion. It's all subjective. To me, Midnight Express. To somebody else, uh, you know... could have been the assassins or it could be anybody. It's all subjective. But um, I um, was blessed to be at the NWA, mid to late 80s, Crockett. They brought these guys into Baltimore, Philly, the Meadowlands, Nassau Coliseum. You had the Four Horsemen on top, Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, Russians, Road Warriors, it was so talent-laden. They had guys like Billy Graham and Jimmy Valiant, mid-card. Rick Rude, Manny Fernandez, mid-card. It was unbelievable, the talent base that these guys had. So um, it was unbelievable, those shows. And, um, you know, I'm not as enamored by it today. I love Ring of Honor. Um, Nigel McGuinness. One of, the, one of your guys, Nigel Abs- McGuinness. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Him and uh, Brian Danielson, a.k.a. Daniel Bryan. What, the, what those guys were doing was the equivalent of Dory Funk and Jack Briscoe, Ricky Steamboat, and Ric Flair. Those guys came out every night. I saw them live four times you know, against each other. It, four to five stars every night, every time they wrestled. It was It was art. It's a shame that Nigel McGuinness didn't get the WWE 
as a wrestler. I know he's there as an announcer because that guy at his peak was as great as anybody. I'm serious, and I'm jaded. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Such, do you know what? I was kind of glad he had that run in CNA uh, facing Angle. Yeah, but they changed his name. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, he was great in TNA, but he never got that WWE yeah. run, no. which makes you a household name. Um, but God, what those guys did in Ring of Honor, I, I would I would go to all their shows in New York for years, and uh, Nigel was on top, and God, the guy was an artist, you know. Where were you going for them? Manhattan Center, Hammerstein Manhattan Ballroom, Center and Hammerstein Ballroom, right by the Garden. Yeah, yeah. right by right by Madison Square Garden, a block or two away. Yeah. What was it like being at shows there? Like, obviously, the aura of the building. It was electric. It was electric. It was a smaller crowd, but everyone there was, you know, just intense and a rabid ROH fan. And I was a little disillusioned when um, AEW turned up. And it's, it's almost like the fans abandoned ROH and... No, they're not what they were during the Nigel, Daniel Bryan, uh, Bryan Danielson, I should say, era. But there's still quality wrestling that deserves being supported, you know. I, I looked at it as as soon as they'd left to go to AEW, the talent, it gave the next wave, you know, going into Ring of Honor a chance. That's, that's how I looked at it at the time. Like you say, so much talent worldwide. But, but, but wrestling fans have this either or, you know, it's not Crips versus Bloods, you know. You don't have to go, I'm a WWE fan, so I hate AEW. Or I'm an AEW fan, so I can't support <laughs> Ring of Honor. You know, be selective. I, 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 sometimes I won't even watch an entire card. I'll just go, this match doesn't interest me, and I'll fast forward to something that does. I mean, be selective, but you don't have to... Um, you know, turn on a promotion like this, somehow the enemy, you know, I, I don't get it. Mark Haskins and Joe Hendry have done well. They, you know, they've been, they've been thrust to the front, the British guys, so it's cool to see. It's cool to see, yeah, absolutely. Evan, I want to talk to you. Obviously, you're most notably known for film and TV, but you've had an extensive radio career when you sent me the bio over. So I'd like to talk to you, go to you now about your radio career, if you could tell sure, the listeners and viewers sure. about that. Thank you. Um, what I have found over the years is one thing always leads to another. I did a very early um, news sheet or um, dirt sheet or whatever you would call it. Uh, it was called Wrestling Then and Now, and I published it for a good 20 years. And one of my readers was a um, radio host on a 50,000-watt New York City radio station, WBAI-FM which is very famous in America. It's very left-wing political, but this was an art show. And uh, the host of the show, Fred Giobold, who was my radio mentor, he, um, he loved wrestling. So he said, why don't you come on the show and um, do a wrestling segment? And I was like, wow, you know, that's something different. I had never done, this is going back to like 1991. And I said, yeah, I, I would love to. And uh, that led to me interviewing wrestlers on the show. And some of the memories from that show, boy, I'll tell you, I, um, I was interviewing 
I was interviewing Sherry Martel one night, and this is late night radio. And she says to me, I've been on the road 15 years. I never saw my kid grow up with real pain, like real, like mm -hmm. real pain. Like I'm, I'm doing radio 30 years. So this is like coming off the top of my head. I'm at that same show and we're interviewing Eddie Guerrero about three weeks after Art Bard died. Okay. And he is sobbing, sobbing on air. I'll never forget it. Just sobbing. And, um, one New Year's Eve, I'm interviewing Luthez. One night, I'm interviewing Ivan Koloff and looking out at the Manhattan buildings, the skyline, and, uh, you know, and it, it's just like you kind of pinch yourself as a fan. You know, you're on, a, you're on a different level as a radio host on a 50,000-watt New York City station. It's, uh, and it was, a, it was a great experience. But unfortunately, um, Fred ended up dying, um, and you know, we uh, ended up being canceled. So that was uh, that was that experience. And you know, I moved on to other shows, TV, radio. I'm doing a show now called Wrestling and Everything. And what happened with that was mid-pandemic. I just said, I'm going out of my mind. Basically, we were quarantined here in New York. We had 800 people a day dying. It was no joke here a couple of months ago. So um, um, we, we, we're doing one-hour interviews with people who are interviewed less frequently. And uh, we're giving, like, for example, Bruce Hart. Bruce Hart, we had him on for an hour. And Bruce Hart also champion guys like Dynamite Kid and Davey Boy Smith and the, the, the smaller Japanese guys in Calgary. And Bruce Hart helped revolutionize the wrestling business. And a lot of people aren't really aware of that. You, know, you always hear Bret Hart and Owen Hart, but Bruce Hart in his own way really helped revolutionize the business. So we'll have hour-long discussions with really interesting people and some are unsung and lesser known. And um, the pandemic just made this happen. And in, in life, like I said, one thing will always lead to another. You have to be in it to win it. And um, what you're doing now, you know, will lead to other things, you know, later. You know, you're a young guy. And what Johnny Valiant taught me was when you get offers, you know, ponder it. You know, think it over, find out the people you're working with are honest, stand up, you know, legit. But if you say no, you close the door. If you say yes, you open yourself to new opportunities. And um, with media today, where you can have a radio station, a TV station, uh, a recording studio out of your living room or your basement, you know, it's, it's amazing, the possibilities. And um, I'm a little older. I'm not quite as tech savvy, but you do try to embrace it. And uh, especially as a promotional tool, you know, um, 350 days, like I said, we spent six years on. So we'll use every social media 
available to get the word out because the film's from the heart and um, you know you again blood sweat and tears six years of work you put into something and getting the word out is almost harder than making the film you know reaching millions and millions of potential viewers you know uh, on low or no advertising budget you know that's the problem that's the difficulty with independent films. They don't have, you know, when the Avengers comes out, everybody and their grandmother's going to know about it. <laughs> when an indie film comes out, you got to make sure everybody knows about it. Yeah. Fully fledged behind the machine or behind them, aren't they? Getting it out there, you know, it's like, as you, as you say, Evan, I'd like to speak about your autobiography as well. Apartment, sure. apartment 4B, like in Brooklyn. Yeah, so tell us, tell us about that and sure. how, it came, how it came to be, how it came to fruition. I, um, I grew up in a very tough neighborhood, East Flatbush, Brooklyn. At one point, I was the only white kid on the block, one of the few in the school, and it's the uh, good and bad and ugly of that scenario. The um, beautiful friends who protected me, the heels and villains who brutalized me okay it was a um it was a tough period in, in america a lot of um you know racial unrest and uh, the the peak of the civil rights movement and it, it was just a tough time and i was caught in the middle of all of it and it's um 50 or so stories anecdotes about growing up in that period. And um, it's, um, again, it's from the heart. And a lot of it is cathartic and a lot of it is painful. And um, I'm working on a new book that I'm almost finished with, which takes me from that point until this point. Um, it's called Wrestling Rings, Blackboards, and Movie Sets. And it's my surreal journey through life the couch to the left of me which the camera can see the very end of um johnny valiant lanny poffo greg valentine other legends have slept in that couch and i have woken up in the morning and just pinched myself seeing them you know childhood heroes and how surreal my life has been waking up in a hotel room as an agent with Nikolai Volkov, and he has these hand-carved blocks from the old country, and he's doing hundreds of push-ups, 6 a.m. in the morning, and he goes, Evan, let's arm wrestle, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I know this isn't going to go well for me. <laughs> I'm 220, 6 foot 2. I'm not a 98-pound weakling. I couldn't move this guy one inch, not one inch. <laughs> how powerful this man is. Yeah, man. And um, how surreal the whole journey has been. Um, and a, a lot of it is funny. I'm on a, I'm on a bus in L.A. with uh, Nikolai and uh, Captain Lou and uh, Ian Sheik. And this woman walks on the bus. It was, a, it was a bus going from the hotel to the airport. And a um, woman gets on the bus, 
looks at Nikolai and goes, you are Nikolai Volkov. And Nikolai was like the friendly, warmest guy in the world. Yes, nice to meet you. What's your name? You know, like this whole thing. So then Nikolai goes, this is my partner, the Iron Sheik. And he looked exhausted. It had been a long weekend. The woman goes, the woman goes, that's not the Iron Sheik. And he got pissed. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's like, get the fuck out of here, you jabroni. You know? <laughs> you know? I mean, some of it was so surreal, like living through all of this. Um, in the book, I tell the story. Um, I'm at this convention, and um, Johnny Valiant is, um, you know, I'm with Johnny Valiant. Who sits next to me? Seika. The platinum princess of porn, like the biggest porn queen of the 80s. And she's, she's you know, it's Johnny and Seika for the weekend pretty much. So um, she's telling me her life story, which has a lot of tragedy in it and uh, poignant. So she's with her husband. And the next day, the next day, this uh, guy sits down and he looks shot. His teeth are missing. He looks like something the cat dragged in. And he pulls out a bunch of DVDs to sell. And I put two and two together. This is Richard Bola. The name may not mean anything to you. This was the coach in Debbie Does Dallas. This was a, a male porn star from the 80s. Okay? So it's just this surreal, yeah. surreal, you know, so... I tell people all the time, it sounds very glamorous, but, you know, you have an ex-wrestler, an ex-boxer, an ex-porn queen, an ex-rock star, and they're all there because they need the payday, they need the money, they, they're selling their gimmicks. And the 50th time you look across, and there's Sonny, and there's Missy Hyatt, and there's Virgil, you, you go, it's not that glamorous. It's really not that glamorous. And uh, there's some disheveled 80s Playboy playmate, you know, uh, trying to put herself together. You know, it's, it's not what people perceive it to be. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with wrestling. I have a love-hate relationship with all of it pretty much because along the way you lose a lot of good people. You lose a lot of good people. I was um, watching a movie with my wife and um, movie ends. I go online. There's six messages, instant messages. What happened to Johnny Valiant? Is he dead? It's like somebody's punching me in the face. I, I had no idea. I'm, I'm sitting watching a movie. So I'm praying it's just one of these celebrity death rumors that you yeah. see all the time. But it wasn't. No, no. He's crossing the same street he's crossed for 50 or 60 years in his hometown. Okay, it's rainy. It's foggy. Guy runs him down. The guy wasn't drunk. The guy didn't see him. Just a tragic accident. So... Um, one day I'm about to do one of my radio shows in studio. I'm, I'm five minutes before I'm about to go on. I got a call, Nikolai's dead. 
I just spoke to him the other day. Mm. He goes, Evan, I'm coming home from the hospital. I feel much better. They cleared out the infection. I feel much better. His wife finds him dead in bed. I find out five minutes before I go mm. on. Oh. You know, it's like you're just trying to, you know, like the show must go on. It was like you're trying not to cry, you know? So um, there's a lot of joy, a lot of pain, a lot of unbelievable experiences like the wrestler. Even 350 days, we had a beautiful premiere in New York, J.J. Dillon and um, Tito Santana and, uh, you know, all these legends. Ba Backlund was in the audience of all people. You look in the audience, there's Bob Backlund. Again, the place is packed, every... Every seat is full, the Manhattan, beautiful movie theater. So again, you get that sense of satisfaction. We put six years into something and it's real. It's real. You know, there, there it is on the screen. These people are watching it. They're applauding. They're involved. We had people in the audience crying. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Our editor on 350 Days, Michael Burlingame, he worked with, you'll appreciate this, <laughs> Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney, yeah. Mariah Carey, John Cougar Mellencamp, Sting. Not Sting from WCW, Police. <laughs> Absolutely, okay. yeah. This is, this is the level of editor we had on this um, Incredible. Film. So the first time I meet with him, he knows nothing. he knows nothing about wrestling, nothing about wrestling. And I said to Darren Antola, the executive producer, I said, he's perfect. He's perfect. He's going to pick the most powerful, poignant, heart-wrenching material. He doesn't know this guy's undercard, this guy's mid-card, this guy's main event, this guy's a legend. He has no idea. He's just, so the cream always rises to the top. When the smoke cleared, the stars of the movie are really Billy Graham, who is so charismatic, the guy could read a phone book, you'd be riveted. And Bret Hart, who's so introspective, it's almost like they're yin-yang. They complement each other. Bret Hart's soft-spoken, intense. Billy Graham is, you know, just unbelievably charismatic. My dad was a New York City taxi driver, and um, he drove in the 60s and 70s. He said the only people that could stop traffic in Manhattan were Muhammad Ali, Julie Newmar, who was Catwoman on Batman, who had like the greatest body you've ever seen, and Super Stubbly Graham. My dad said Super Stubbly Graham would walk and traffic would just stop because nobody looked like him in the 70s. You know, it wasn't a gym culture back then. A guy with like 24-inch arms and dyed blonde hair and colorful clothes, you know, we didn't see this in New York, you know? So... Um, yeah, man, it, it's, been, it's been an interesting ride and, um, you know, um, not done yet. Just going to keep trying to produce quality work and, uh, you know, this pandemic has not been conducive, but uh, that doesn't stop you from writing a book. No, that's so it. It doesn't stop you from doing radio, so you just keep plowing ahead. Utilizing it, that's, that's it. That's absolutely right. Before I close out, just one thing to say, because it's a UK-based university, and sure. you, were, you were a guest lecturer for Edgehill University, Albion, out of Ormskirk, should I say, I got tongue-tied then, 
which is not far away from Liverpool. I studied in John Moore's University in Liverpool, okay. so I know Ormskirk quite well. So yeah, just tell us about being a guest lecturer for the guys yeah, at Edge Hill. I produced a film called Teresa Sario Alive Again, which was about wounded warriors and a singer who lost one of her legs in a tragic accident, not in the military. Um, she was a pedestrian, and it, there was a car accident where the car veered into her on the sidewalk and ripped her leg off. So she was in a coma for like seven days, six, seven days, wakes up, and her family's surrounding her, and they break the news to her, you know? And so she's like, well, I'm a one-legged singer, and this is not conducive to, you know, top of the pop charts. And she decided to dedicate herself to the Wounded Warriors, and she um, performs for many of them. And uh, it was a very powerful experience meeting some of these guys, young guys, one fellow lost three limbs, three, two legs and an arm. Another guy was burnt over much of his body and blinded with traumatic brain injury. And she would go and visit these people and comfort them and sing to them. So um, the dean at Ormskirk, Mark Schofield, was gracious enough to invite us, and we screened it there. And, uh, you know, it was quite an experience. And, um, you know, anytime you create art and it finds some kind of audience. And it's interesting because um, I always say um, you, may be, you may be familiar with the movie Once about street musicians in the UK. Beautiful movie, Once. Anyway, the swell season, the, the great musicians, they acted in the movie. Next thing you know, they're at the Academy Awards. They won Best Song. And uh, the gentleman, the lead singer, I forget his name offhand, um, Glenn, Has Glenn Hansen, he says, um, create art. Create art. Don't create product. Don't create schlock. Create art. Because somehow the art finds its audience. It won't always find as big an audience as The Wrestler, but um, I did a movie called Wrestling Then and Now, Killer Kowalski, Nikolai Volkov. We did this 17, 18 years ago, and it had basically disappeared. But now it's on Amazon Prime. <laughs> and, and one person after another telling me, I love the movie, I love the movie. We shot this on pennies. I'm, talk I'm talking we shot this on nothing. Basically, a guy followed me with one camera, and I visited my friends, these, these yeah. famous wrestlers. And, um, you know, it's very satisfying now for me because Kowalski's gone. Nikolai's gone. Don Dr. Death Arnold. Tiger Khan. Most of the guys in the movie are gone. So this is, you know, something that honors them and, and, and will be out there forever. So not everything has to be the wrestler, but if you do positive, heartfelt, quality work, it will survive. I mean, I give you credit. You're sitting here having an intense one hour or whatever interview as opposed to doing the same stultifying roar and smackdown 
results and you know over analysis and rumors yeah why do you why do you need a thousand shows doing no, the same show i agree with you i agree with you totally not i'm not knocking the people for doing it that's their mo they like doing it but it's oversaturated uh, i was only speaking to dal wilkes about it last month you know uh same thing he says i'm not going to do a show for you know someone says 1997 certain arena you know he can't remember that far back and he doesn't want to do it um more power to people who want to do it but i've just never done that format of show i've been asked to but you want to know something these guys have wined and dined with kings and queens they've had a Johnny Valiant wrestled in front of oil sheiks three in the morning in the Middle East, looked out from the ring. There wasn't a single woman in the crowd, okay? Yeah. They've had experiences that nobody has had. I mean, it's sex, drugs, rock and roll, like rock stars. And, um, you know, I always find the human interest much more interesting than... Tell me who was the booker in Chattanooga in 72 and let's go over this angle from every possible. It's like, it's, it's enough. It's enough. It's been done to death. I'll watch on occasion a shoot interview if it's somebody I'm a huge fan of. But I, I don't want to watch 5,000 shoot interviews, you know, where you're staring at a guy's head for two hours. It's just, you know... It's, it's a little obsessive sometimes. I think that's the perfect way to close out, you know, just your point, your point of view on that one. I, I take it. I absolutely take it. Evan, where can the fans, listeners, viewers find you in terms of social media? That's my first one okay. to close out. Well, okay. people always get confused with the spelling. So it's E-V-A-N-G-I-N-Z-B-U-R-G. Um... I have a uh, Evan Ginsberg's old school wrestling memories you could check out. Um, follow. We update it daily. Great, great wrestling history. Um, we have the 350 Days, um, the movie, 350 Days, the movie Facebook page. Um, we have a 350 Days, the movie website. Uh, we're not hard to find. Um, wrestling and everything coast to coast. We drop on youtube every weekend usually saturday night sunday morning um and that's pretty much it i mean check out 350 days it's available in the uk on amazon and, and other platforms and um you know I, I think you'll enjoy it and we appreciate your support and um thanks for having me on i'm not blowing smoke i've watched a lot of wrestling documentaries over the years not just because you're in attendance with me now but it's one of the, one of the best it is one of the i've watched a lot of documentaries over the year wrestling based but i think even if you're not a wrestling fan you can you can watch it i i say to non-wrestling fans need to watch 350 days if you have and they enjoyed it so you don't necessarily have to be a wrestling fan there to, to pick it up it's we told human. the editor we told the editor make a movie that would make an old woman who never watched wrestling cry. So, so the wrestling <laughs> fans will appreciate it. The non-wrestling fans will appreciate it. Look, even with the wrestler and Rocky, Rocky the boxing movie, people don't realize in both of them there were only like 13 to 16 minutes of wrestling and boxing. You, you know, you have to make a movie. It's not just about the action, you know. Thank you ever so much. 
Mr. Evan Ginsberg, associate producer for The Wrestler, which starred Mickey Rourke, associate producer for 350 Days. What a wrestling documentary that is with all my old favourites, including Bret Hart. Got to put it there. Thanks. I've been under the learning tree this afternoon, this evening here in the UK. An absolute honour and a privilege for you to spare the time. I know you're a busy man. And so thank you so much for your time and for doing what you do. Plug your sponsor. Powered 4, which used to be Turnbuckle TV. So, yeah, the show is sponsored by Powered 4, a great streaming site for UK wrestling. They've got podcasts on there. They've got all sorts of content. So, yeah, Powered 4, Richard. There you go. Richard and John Scott are doing a superb job. So, yeah, it's just an honour to, to have them associated with the show too. So, yeah, thank you for that, Evan. I, I've done radio 30 years. You can't do it without sponsors. <laughs> there you go. I'll, I'll keep this in. This will be on this <laughs> bit'll be on the episode. Support that sponsor. <laughs> there you go. They'll be very thankful of that when they see this. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care, man. Speak soon. You too. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Powered 4 TV. So go and check them out for anything wrestling related, old events, new events when we come out of COVID, podcasts, you name it, it's all there at Powered 4 TV. So find them across social media. And a big, big thank you to Richard and John for looking after me too. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.